This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, as we approach St George's Day on the 23rd of April, we're investigating the origins of dragon myths. George, of course, is England's patron saint, and as the legend goes, slew a deadly fire-breathing dragon. More on that later. Of course, dragons might not be real, but there's nothing mythical about their place in cultures throughout history and around the world. And joining us to delve into the origins of the dragon myth is Professor Caroline Larrington, who is a professor of medieval European literature at the University of Oxford. Caroline, thanks for coming on. I'm delighted to be here today. First of all, how widespread are the stories and images of scaly potentially fire-breathing monsters? Well, they're extraordinarily widespread. We find dragons, all things which are very similar to dragons, really from around the world. At least they're well attested in Asia. And we have something like the Great Serpent in Australian mythology as well. And of course, they're all over Europe. So they clearly do have quite a wide range and they come in various varieties of shapes and sizes. Okay, can you describe the sort of cultural differences then? I'm presuming not all the world's cultural dragons are the same. No, and they they have different functions. So the Chinese dragon, for example, is a water-dwelling creature and perhaps is associated with the idea of the embodiment of particular rivers. It doesn't breathe fire, obviously, living in such a, a watery element. And although it's long and scaly and it has claws, it's quite a a benevolent creature. It symbolizes the coming of the rains and fertility and good harvests. Mm. And so a dragon is a very powerful sort of protector symbol and it's very positively valence in Chinese culture. And then in Australia also, the great rainbow serpent is associated with water as well. And it's said when you can see the rainbow in the sky, it's the great serpent traveling from one waterhole to another to find a new place where a nomadic tribe can set up their camp and because they need to be near the waterhole. So they need something to seek out the next place to go and make camp. So those two types of dragons are very different from the ones that we're familiar with. So two sort of very positive images of dragons there and water-dwelling ones, but things change when we talk about European ones, I presume. Yes, in Europe, we have two main varieties of dragon. And the most common kind of dragon is a scaly kind of creeping dragon, which spits poison. And it may have no legs at all. So it may be quite like an oversized serpent, or it might have four legs, or it might, I think it would be odd to have two legs. Now, you can't quite see how they would evolve. And they quite often live in marshy places and make them uninhabitable for people who want to move in and and settle there. And then we have perhaps a more dramatic and exciting dragon, the fire-breathing dragon that flies through the air. And that's obviously a very dangerous dragon to try to defend yourself against. You can't really live comfortably side by side with a fire-breathing dragon. And so you have to find a hero who can get rid of it. And is a fire-breathing flying dragon unique to a particular country or set of countries in Europe? They seem to be largely associated with Germanic areas. So we find them in England 
and we find them in Scandinavia as well, most predominantly, yes. So, right. so that's where they tend to turn up. So what's the typical British dragon then? Well, most of the folkloric British dragons are the types that creep around the place and take up residence. They suddenly emerge somewhere on the edge of a village or in a particular location, quite often, as I say, marshy. And there they make a nuisance of themselves eating cattle. Sometimes you can pacify them by giving them milk. They're particularly fond of milk, which is quite right. strange. <laughs> and like occasionally. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, oversized cats <laughs> might just work, but perhaps they're less strokeable. Yes. And of course, some types of dragons eat people, particularly girls. And particularly in ballads, we find that dragons are fond of eating the odd girl. So in the Northern so, Hemisphere, then broadly speaking in the British Isles, the dragon is a very threatening animal. Yes, um, they are very difficult to live alongside, whereas, of course, the Chinese dragon is, is something to be welcomed. The fire-breathing dragons seem to signify a particular kind of threat, and they can be a portent of something terrible that's about to happen. So the first time we hear about dragons at all in a, an English or a British context is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle entry for the year 793, when we're told that dragons were seen flying over the island of Lindisfarne, Holy Island. Yes, before the, the Viking Raid. Coast. Exactly, they were presaging the Viking Raid. And we can see that connection, of course, between the flying fiery dragon and the dragon-proud longships, which were going to descend on the monastery very shortly afterwards. These fiery dragons, of course, didn't land. And so they were simply seen in the sky. And we might think of them perhaps as signs of meteorites or comets, if we want to find a logical explanation for them. That's a very interesting sort of cultural coincidence there, isn't it? You might have had some shooting stars or some sort of astronomical phenomena. And then the next day, the Vikings land with, surprisingly, their dragon images on their longships and people put two and two together. You can see how it makes a kind of cultural sense that uh, something you might not have taken any notice of in the sky then becomes really significant when a great disaster happens the, the very next day or, or shortly afterwards. So 793, would that be the source point for when dragons become ingrained in the English consciousness? I think we might say that. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is actually composed slightly later. So it's somebody in the mid to late 9th century looking back and drawing on oral legends and other kinds of information about what happened nearly 100 years previously. But we also have, of course, the dragon in Beowulf, the, the great old English epic. And that's also a fire-breathing dragon. And that exhibits all the main characteristics that we associate dragons with in Old English. Namely, that it is very fond of treasure. And in the poem, the dragon turns up because it gets wind somehow of a, a great treasure hoard that's buried in a barrow near Beowulf's Hall. And of course, here, of course, we have to remember that the whole of Beowulf, even though it's written in Old English, is actually set in Scandinavia. And so the dragon turns up, moves in on top of the treasure hoard, and for hundreds of years nothing happens because the dragon just dozes there peacefully. But then somebody breaks into the dragon's mound, finds the treasure, steals a single goblet, 
and makes off with it, takes it. It's a slave who's fallen out with his master. And so he wants to make peace with the master by offering him this cup. And the dragon wakes up and knows that just one little item of treasure has gone missing. And it's absolutely furious and sniffs around to smells the, the tracks of the thief. And when nightfall comes, it flies out and goes on a kind of fiery rampage over the settlement, in particular burning down Beowulf's own mead hall, over which he rules as king of the Yats in southern Sweden. So there we have the characteristics of the fiery dragon, the flying dragon, the one who travels by night, and the one who is completely obsessed with their treasure as well. Yes. And so Beowulf, like a lot of other heroes, has to try and find a particular means of fighting against a big scaly monster, really well armoured, spitting poison and shooting out flames. How is he going to deal with it? And so quite often that's the key to success, fighting against dragons. Yes, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to read Beowulf, perhaps <laughs> even in the Old English, but uh, what happens in the end? It doesn't end well for Beowulf, but it doesn't end well for the dragon either. So Beowulf gets a specially made iron shield and he takes his faithful sword, which has never failed him. And he goes up against the dragon, but the sword won't really penetrate because dragons are so well plated. Mm. And he's, he's seared by the flames, he's poisoned by the poison, and then a young relative comes to help him. And between the two of them, with a sword and a dagger, they find the weak spot in the dragon's armour, in its underbelly. And the dragon is killed, but Beowulf sadly expires. So he's quite cheered up by looking at the treasure that he's won for his people. And he tells his young friend Wiglaf to take the treasure to the Yats. And this may help to compensate them for the loss of the king that they love so much. And then he's buried in a, a great mound overlooking the sea. And the dragon is rather unceremoniously tipped over the cliff and presumably sinks to form something of a, a shipping hazard, maybe. That's really interesting how now we're getting into the sense of human beings interacting with these mythical figures, these dragons, and heroes being formed and stories being formed. Yes, it's very typical of Indo-European stories that are about dragons or some huge monster like a dragon, some huge animal-like creature that the culmination is the hero versus the monster and the hero needs to have in the case of perseus we might think he goes against this kind of sea dragon who devours maidens and the king's daughter andromeda is going to be sacrificed to this particular sea monster perseus has just killed medusa the gorgon and so he can use the gorgon's head to turn the dragon into stone and the god Apollo, who goes up against the python, a huge many-headed serpent-like creature, has his own divine arrows. So there's quite a lot about having the right kind of weapon, the right approach and the right technology there. Mm. And what you're describing there is all from Greek myth. Yes, yes, that's right. Very interesting. So I can already see from the Beowulf issue that it's not just an English dragon, it's a, potentially a Swedish one, even though yeah. it's in Old English. So it's still yes. a lot of cross-cultural referencing going on here. Yes, and we have um, some well-known stories from Old Norse Icelandic literature about dragons too. And in particular, one of the major dragons that we find in Old Norse is the dragon in modern Icelandic, he's called Faupnir. 
and he's perhaps more familiar as Fafnir or Fafner in Wagner's version in the Ring Cycle. And he was originally some kind of other creature. It's not clear if he was a human or a dwarf or a giant. But he comes into the possession of a huge hoard of treasure, in fact, the Rheingold. And he kills his father in order to get possession of this treasure and then turns himself into a dragon so he can sit on top of his hoard and mm. guard it. That's all he really cares about. And Fafner is one of those creeping dragons. He doesn't fly. But he creeps off his hoard and goes down to the river to drink every now and again. And that's how the hero Sigurd, the dragon slayer, is able to kill him. But Fafner, perhaps because he transformed out of another kind of creature, he can talk. Right. And that's pretty unusual for dragons to be able to talk. But Fafner, once he's had his death blow from Sigurd, engages him in quite a conversation. Who are you? Why did you do this to me? and then starts voicing warnings about the future and becomes quite prophetic and tells Sigurd that some things are going to happen to him if he's not very careful. Wow, so a, dra a dragon is a prophet, as a yes, talking well, reptilian devil uh, sort of thing. Well, he's, um, Fafner is pretty annoyed about being killed, it's got to be said. And he says to, to Sigurd, why have you done this? And as Sigurd, he's dying or <laughs> as he's dying yes yeah. and Sigurd says well you know partly because I'm very brave and I go around killing monsters but also because your brother Fafner's brother egged me on to do it because Fafner's brother who is a smith and Sigurd's foster father obviously wants a share of the treasure but can't doesn't want to go against the dragon himself so he gets the greatest hero in the world to attack the dragon for him and the, the dragon says to Sigurd, you do not trust my brother, don't trust Regin, even though he's brought you up and he's fought this great sword for you that you've used against me. Don't trust him. And Sigurd listens to this and sure enough, with some other input from some other prophetic creatures, pretty soon he cuts his foster father's head off and then he has all the treasure for himself. So how do we characterise the English dragon then in English folklore? How do we define an English dragon? Well, an English dragon, I think, doesn't necessarily, in the folkloric tradition, doesn't necessarily have some treasure, though quite often some of them do. And they lurk around in a particular neighbourhood, as I say, eating cattle, eating maidens if they can get them, drinking the milk. And then a hero has to come along and deal with them because of the sort of economic pressure the dragon is putting on the community by eating the stuff that constitutes the wealth of the community, whether it's their lovely women that they hope will marry and provide new inhabitants for the community, or obviously cattle are incredibly valuable and even mm. milk has, has some value as well. Okay. And sometimes we can find that the dragon has appeared because someone's done something wrong, as in the case of the Lambton worm, which is a, quite an interesting creature. It's a little worm that a man finds, he's gone fishing, and in some versions of the story he's fishing on a Sunday, which he should not have been doing. And he finds this little worm on the end of his hook, and he, as the, the ballad says, he can't be bothered to carry it home, so he throws it down a well. Now this is a really bad idea, because you shouldn't throw foreign objects into wells. And the well is a wonderful life-giving sort of source of growth and fertility. Yes. And so it's not too long before this 
little worm has grown into great big worm. And our hero, who's the heir of Lambton in the northeast, is charged with dealing with this worm since he caused the problem in the first place. And he gets specially made armour so that he's proof against the poison-spitting worm. And on the advice of a witch, he fights against this serpent in the river. And the idea is that as he chops it into pieces with his sword, normally the serpent, like a, a cut worm, can reconstitute itself and become sort of unkillable that way. And regrow, yeah. But this time, because of the current in the water, the bits of the dragon or, or the serpent are all washed away in different directions and they can't meet up to grow again. So that's quite a clever piece of technology. But the problem in this story is that the heir of Lambton has promised the witch that he will give her the first living creature that he sees on his way back from the, the battle with the dragon. And he's hoped to arrange that it's going to be his dog, which seems to me quite heartless. <laughs> um, but maybe dogs are a little bit more expendable. But by accident, it turns out that his father rushes out of the castle to congratulate him on this great feast. And so now he's supposed to kill his father. And unlike in, in some folkloric stories with a heavy heart, the heir would do that. The heir says, absolutely not. I'm not killing my father just because of some promise I made to a witch. And therefore he becomes cursed that no lantern will ever die in their beds, that they're all going to come to a violent end somewhere or other. And this was a tradition that was well known into the 18th century at Lampton Castle. And you could see a bit of the dragon's skin and some of the armour if you went to visit. I see. I mean, that's quite a long and convoluted story involving um, other aspects of sort of culture, really. Witches, for example. Witches, curses, yes. Yeah. And the sinful nature of, of uh, fishing on the Sunday. So there's quite a lot in that one. So everything evil that you can... Potentially, everything potentially wicked that you can think of is, is in there as a threat to the local population. Yes, and there somebody did something wrong in the first place to call this serpent into being, going fishing and throwing the, the little worm down the well. But quite often the dragon just turns up yes. and people have to learn how to deal with it. Okay, so we've got an idea there of English folklore dealing with dragons that might just exist in the local community, being a threat to livelihoods, women, food and local populations. And then obviously you have the idea of the Lambton story where potentially it's a dragon which has been conjured up through the life-giving elements of a well and that's interspersed with other cultural ideas around evil and wickedness. Let's talk now about the other British dragons. The dragon is obviously an image of the Welsh flag, and I believe it's also reflected in uh, in Scottish flags as well. Am I right in saying that, I mean, certainly on the football kit of the Scottish football team, isn't there some sort of dragon-type image? Well, certainly, I think there are not so many stories from mainland Scotland about dragons, or if there are, they're not all that dissimilar from the English ones. But there is a story from Orkney about a huge creature, again one, a, a kind of sea dragon, called the Mesterstor worm, the huge big worm, literally. And this is a fiery dragon 
but not a flying one. And it lies in the sea and um, swallows up men and boats. And I think it needs a maiden every Sunday as its kind of core diet. Right. And there's a, a lad from Orkney called Assie Paddle, who's the first part of that name is the same word as ashes. And he's like a male Cinderella. Nobody thinks he's much good for anything until this great crisis comes on the community that the, the store worm needs dealing with. And he rose out to do battle with the great store worm with a burning peat in his boat. And his plan is to shove the peat down the dragon's throat. And this is a means that we find quite often in dragon tales. But the dragon swallows him up and the boat at the same time. But luckily, he digests Asipatl and the boat so thoroughly that his liver catches fire with the burning peat. And so he breaks apart and the boy escapes and is acclaimed as a monster killer. And as the dragon expires, the bits of his body become the various islands in the North Atlantic, the Orkneys, the Shetland, Shetland and the Faroes. Yeah. And the body of the dragon is still burning away today. And that's Iceland, where, of course, a volcanic eruption is, in fact, imminent. So we know the dragon is still kind of partially alive there. Figuratively speaking, yes. yes. <laughs> Folklorically speaking. Folklorically speaking, <laughs> yes. exactly. And what about the Welsh dragon? Because obviously we've talked about the fact that it's on the national flag of Wales. So how does that dragon manifest itself? How do we define oh, that? Now the red dragon of Wales is a very old story indeed. And we first hear about it in the writing of Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was writing around 1138, 1140, writing what he called the history of the kings of Britain, though in fact it's more a pseudo-history. It's, it's full of legends. And it's here that we first hear the biography of King Arthur. But before Arthur is born, one of the principal figures in the Arthurian stories, his history is related, and that's Merlin. And so one of the, the kings of Britain, a man called Vortigern, is planning to build a castle to hole up in because he's fighting a constant battle against the Saxons who keep invading the island. And he plans to build this castle in Snowdonia, which is well out of the way of invading Saxons. And as he has his masons start building the castle, they do a great job every day and the castle is beginning to rise from the landscape. But every night it shudders and trembles and it falls down again. And so Vortigern sends for his wise men and says, what's going on? They say, well, really, we have no idea, but they get the idea to tell Vortigern that what the, he needs is to find a man with no father whose blood can be used to mortar the stones together and that will keep the tower upright. And so they ask around to find a man with no visible father and it turns out that Merlin, who is in tradition fathered by a demon, ah. is selected as the boy who has no father. And so Merlin turns up and Vortigern explains that unfortunately he's going to have to be killed in order to glue the tower together. And Merlin says, well, no, hang on a minute, because actually what you need to do is to look what's in the foundations of the tower, because there you'll find a lake. And so they dig down and they find the lake. And Merlin says, now underneath this lake are two dragons and every night they fight. And one is a white dragon and one is a red dragon. And so the lake is drained. And sure enough, there are the dragons. 
and the white dragon and the red dragon fight against each other. And the red dragon finally gets the victory and drives the white dragon away. And the red dragon here represents the native British, who then, of course, become the Welsh. And the white wow. dragon represents the invading Saxons and Angles, who are repelled, at least for the moment. And so that's why the Welsh adopt the red dragon for their symbol, because it represents a kind of idea of Celticness. So in some respects, the Welsh national flag is slightly anti-English. <laughs> yes, well, it does represent a separateness from and, uh, yes. uh, and being earlier than and um, victorious, temporarily at least victorious over the English. Yes. So how do you characterise then all these um, British folkloric stories about dragons? It sounds to me that there's certainly a common theme of threat, but are there any differences? Well, one variation, I suppose, of which we have a few examples in Britain, though they're more common in continental Europe, particularly in France, is the kind of dragon who hangs about making a nuisance of itself and, in fact, isn't killed, but a saint comes along and banishes it. And one very good example of that kind of story is the tale of St. Carantoc and the dragon. Now, St. Carantoc was the son of the King of Cardigan in Wales. Mm -hmm. And his father wasn't very keen on his um, monastic uh, vocation. And so Carantoc decides to leave Wales and he sails over the Bristol Channel to set up home in England in peace and quiet. But as he's sailing, his portable altar made of marble drops out of the boat and gets lost. So meanwhile, King Arthur has been told that there's a, a dragon roaming around the Somerset marshes in the levels. And Arthur goes out to look for this dragon. But every time Arthur turns up, the dragon just bobs down under the swamps and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. And so Arthur bumps into a stranger who turns out to be St. Carantoc and says, can you help me with the dragon? And in fact, I found your portable altar, which I can hand back over to you. And so Arthur gives St. Carantoc the altar and Carantoc goes and talks to the dragon and puts his stole around the dragon's neck, his kind of scarf-like sign of being a holy man, and just leads him away somewhere else and says, now you can live here in this habitat, but you mustn't go hanging around in the levels bothering people. And that's a story we find quite often that saints generally don't go around with swords and spears and fight against dragons, but rather use more peaceful means and the power of God to take the dragon somewhere where he's not going to impinge on human habitats. That's interesting that um, violence isn't used against the negative entity. It's um, more a spiritual shooing away, in a way. Yeah, and it suggests that God thinks that there's a place in creation for all of his creatures, and perhaps sometimes you just have to relocate them rather than destroy them. I think it's quite a sort of eco-narrative, that particular version. Broadly speaking, what do you think dragons represent in English culture and in world culture, if you can talk about that as well? I think in English culture they represent a kind of sense of people, particularly in rural communities, living a little bit on the edge, that one year the harvest will be good, the rains will come, everything will grow and everything will be absolutely fine. 
and then another year something can happen through no fault of your own and suddenly the community doesn't thrive any longer, you don't have enough food, the people get sick. And it's not easy to see why one year should be so different from another. But I think you can externalise that kind of threat that turns up and damages the economy of a, a rural community as something that if you only knew how to combat it, you could drive it away and everything would be fine again. So I think dragons represent a kind of unseen force of nature that threatens the community and which can be dispelled if you know how. And perhaps if we think about the popularity of mummer's plays from the medieval period, which very often feature the story of George and the dragon, there's a kind of cyclical driving away of the dragon, killing the dragon in those stories, in order to make sure that the community is protected for another year. Now, you mentioned St George and the Dragon, obviously, and we did cover that in a previous episode. We heard how his character is an amalgamation of different influences over time, really. What is the definitive St George and the Dragon story as it relates to England? Well, I think the version that, at least in the part of the world where I live, that people think is the definitive story, is the location of the fight with the dragon at Dragon Hill in what's now South Oxfordshire, but which before 1973 used to be Berkshire. And Dragon Hill is just below the great chalks landscape. The Uffington White image Horse? Image of the Uffington White Horse. Mm. And so although we might think that there could be a connection between the White Horse and the horse ridden by St George, I don't know that we can necessarily claim that. But it's a, a chalk landscape, so there's a thin layer of grass on top of very white chalk. And if you stand up by the white horse and you look down, you can see a kind of rounded hill below you, and that's Dragon Hill. And the green grass on top of the hill is worn away in places, so there are some white spots there. <laughs> and this is where St George went into battle against the dragon in order to save the king's daughter, as everybody knows. And the white spots that we can see on Dragon Hill are where the dragon's poisonous blood ate through the grass and, and showed the chalk below. And so in outline, the story's much the same as you find everywhere else about St George, but it is very strongly localised to this place. And what was George saving people from, apart from obviously the threat of the dragon in the English story? I think it, the dragon can be made to stand for paganism or for heresy or for the old ways in some ways, I think. A very similar dragon turns up in Spencer's The Fairy Queen, composed at the end of the 16th century. And there the dragon is made to represent Catholicism. And the Red Cross Knight who goes up against it is a kind of um, figure of Reformation Church, if you like that's going against the old ways. So I think it's possible to see the dragon as a kind of force of old-fashioned ideas that need to be overcome if we're going to get into a new way of thinking. We talked at the start that um, dragons aren't necessarily all-threatening. In Australian myth and Chinese, it's quite a positive creature. Are they always threatening and dangerous in stories in England? As time goes on, the dragons get slightly more comic. 
So we have a couple of stories in which the dragon is more or less undone by his love of sweet or sticky food. Because, of course, the dragon, we can imagine, might get tired of eating either maidens or cattle. And in one story, the story of the dragon of Filey, the dragon eats parkin, which is a great Yorkshire delicacy, a kind of sticky gingerbread. And he eats so much of it that his teeth get stuck together and he rushes into the sea in order to try and ungum his, his teeth. And as he's there, the townsfolk, seeing that he's distracted, rush at him and kill him and he turns into stone. And you can see the dragon still in the sea at Filey to this day in the form of a kind of long shale of rock that's called Filey Rig. Right. And there's a similar story from Sussex about the dragon of Knucker Hole, who gets a taste for very big suet puddings. And in one story, Jim, who brings him the suet pudding, then brings him a second pudding, which just is so heavy, the dragon swallows it up and sinks to the bottom of the hole, which is a kind of pond where he lives and he's never seen again. So it's kind of a warning about not going swimming, maybe after a heavy meal. And in another version of the knuckerhole story, the dragon just gets a bit of a stomach upset after eating too much suet pudding. And this puts him off his stride and it makes it easier for Jim to cut his head off. And then we have the story of the dragon of Wantley as well, who was done in by Moore of Moore Hall. And Moore does, um, it's tipped off that the only place where this dragon is vulnerable is in its, what we might politely call its bottom. And so he gets a, a specially made, very pointy metal boot and kicks the dragon quite severely in the behind. And the dragon expires. And this is another talking dragon, in fact. So the dragon expires, lamenting that if Moore had not found that particular spot, the dragon would still be alive. But as it is, that's the end of him. That's very interesting how, over time, the threat of the dragon has become a bit more comedic. Why do you think that has happened in these stories? It's an interesting question. I think, in part, it has to do with the kind of mass stories of dragons that make them less something that people kind of half believe in, and more a sort of quaint relic of the past. Mm. And so we know about the story of the Dragon of Wantley and more of Moore Hall because it was featured in a, a chapbook that was widely printed and sold in the, I think, the uh, 18th century. And it features a very splendid woodcut of Moore kicking the poor dragon and the dragon looking over its shoulder in a rather piteous fashion. So I think it has to do with kind of repackaging the dragon for popular tastes that doesn't quite believe in folkloric creatures anymore in, in quite that way. And also, of course, many folk tales in the 19th century start being told for children. And there you can see why you might soften the elements of the demise of the dragon into making it more comic so the child you're telling the story to isn't going to have nightmares about the dragon coming for them if you know that you can, you can buy it off with some gingerbread or with some suet pudding. Children might um, recognise some dragons from recent cultural products. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, in children's literature recently, I think the dragon has become much more cuddly. And you have books like you know, How to Tame Your Dragon. And if you know how to treat it properly, you know, like other large animals, 
you can make it your friend and it, it can become civilised and part of the community, a bit like a child itself in a way. So it, I think it's quite interesting how children's dragons have become tameable and domesticated without necessarily having to kill them or chop their heads off or, or be violent towards them. Whereas in, in broader popular culture, I guess, the Peter Jackson films of The Hobbit, which has a huge dragon in the form of Tolkien's Smaug, mm. which is flying, fire-breathing, absolutely enormous. And the dragons of Game of Thrones as well, similarly, because I think they're descended from Smaug, are like huge nuclear weapons that fly through the sky and become very difficult to control or deal with. Very interesting, yes. I mean, even as a child for me growing up, I think there was Pete's Dragon was a film. Wasn't there a song called Puff the Magic Dragon? These there are all was sort of indeed, yes. Childlike sort of childhood. dragons, aren't they? Yes, and Puff the Magic Dragon was the friend of the little boy in the song. And then as he grew up, he had no place for the dragon in his life any longer and no longer came to visit the dragon and the dragon died of sorrow. So it's a very poignant song, Puff the Magic Dragon. Well, very sad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, but if you're an adult, then they live on as this terrible threat, potentially, in, in um, cultural products. A really key element of fantasy, I think, is having a dragon or the, the capacity for dragons. If we think about Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy or the dragons of Game of Thrones, which are a real game changer when they hatch out and start growing into, into these huge airborne beasts that can both destroy a city and transport people very quickly. Mm. Or, of course, um, Tolkien's idea of, of Smaug the dragon itself is something which seems to speak to maybe our fears of mass destruction and particularly aerial attack. But since then, I think the dragon has become reimagined as nuclear bombs being dropped by aircraft. And I think it, it has that reverberation for us in some ways. Yes, that certainly makes sense. They seem to be a cultural product of whatever's happening in that time period, it would seem. Yes, like most fantasy creatures, they speak to, in some ways, the timeless past in the, the way that they're imagined in terms of form and, and habits. But at the same time, what they're actually doing in culture speaks to exactly to what's happening to the con in now, what's happening in the contemporary. What's one of the main myths that you'd like to dispel around dragons? We've tried to explain them as best we can to listeners, but uh, I know there's one thing that gets your goat. The idea that dragons are any kind of memory of dinosaurs is something which I would just kind of have to say. Do you really think humans were alive at the time of dinosaurs? Is there any kind of you know, historical possibility that would be the case? If humans had been around when dinosaurs existed, they would have been just as wiped out by the meteorite that seems to have spelt the end of the dinosaurs. So there's no possible connection there. But sometimes it's been argued that dragon stories might spring up where you find fossil evidence for dinosaurs. And that would be a possibility, except there doesn't seem to be any real correlation between dinosaur bone finds and the location of these stories. Yes. And some people have suggested maybe it's about battlefields and people have found lots of bones and have assumed that this is where the dragon used to feast. 
But it seems much more likely that if it's a historical battle that people remember there was a battle there and that's why there's bones. Mm. So I think there's a, a lot of very phony sounding explanations for why dragon stories exist. But it would be wonderful if we could find some theory that would make sense of why these stories are so spread out across the world, even if the dragon has different habitats and different functions. What is it that makes humans almost universally want to imagine these huge serpentine creatures? Or ones with legs, and ones that spit venom, and ones that breathe fire, and some that even talk, and some that sit on treasure, there's all kinds. Indeed, and I forgot to mention that another thing that Old English poetry tells us about dragons is that they're very wise. So what do you think that they um, represent in our imaginations then? I think now they represent something both terrifying in terms of the possibility of airborne destruction, as, but also something quite glorious. And there's a moment in Game of Thrones, for example, where when Tyrion sees his first dragon, he's just lost for words and he just gazes up, absolutely spellbound. And there's something of that in the way the dragon is described in Beowulf as well, even as it's going on this fiery rampage burning down the settlement. It's absolutely glorious as it flies through the sky, breathing out these flames. And it's elegant, it's lithe as it kind of snakes across the landscape. Its scales gleam and you can see it in the, the light of the fire that it's producing. So I think there is something glorious about the dragon, particularly the flying dragon, mm. as well as something absolutely horrifying. I would love to see one. Majestic Threat, I think, is a fantastic image on which to end. Thank you very much for talking to us, Caroline Larrington, Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about King Charles I's imprisonments and attempted escapes. They smuggled a silk cord into the king's bedroom. That's thrown from the window, and Charles begins to emerge from the window. What Firebrace says is that he hears a groan. He couldn't get out of this window at all. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>